seats and as you're being seated, if you turn in your Bibles to the Old Testament, 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 2. This morning, our text is 2 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, though we'll focus predominantly on verses 1 through 7. Let's give our attention again to the reading of God's holy word. 2 Samuel chapter 2. After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into this, any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. And David said, To which shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron, Hebron. So David went up there and with his two wives, also Ahanoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him and everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. Now when they told David it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. And I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now therefore let your hands be strong and be valiant. For Saul your Lord is dead. And the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. But Abner... The son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim, and he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and the Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was forty years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. The word of God for the people of God. Some preachers used to be known as uh, three points and a poem preachers. Three points and a poem. All sermons. Three points ended with a poem. Uh, well, I'm, I'm going to change that up a bit. I'm going to be a poem and three points, but we're only going to cover two. I'm a little bit odd, and I've always been that way, and I'm grateful for your toleration of my oddness. A poem and two of three points. Here's the poem. It's, it's not the greatest poem ever penned in the English language, but it makes a point. Here's the poem. My face in the mirror isn't wrinkled or drawn. My house isn't dirty. The cobwebs are all gone. My garden looks lovely and so does my lawn. I think I might never put my glasses back on. <laughs> How many of us have problems with our eyesight? Go ahead, you can raise your hand. I might be able to see them. Uh, well, distance is not my problem. My problem is that these letters on these pages get smaller and smaller. Uh, maybe you've got that problem. Maybe you've got the problem where you can't see things in the distance. Maybe you've got cataracts. Maybe 
maybe you've got a problem with depth perception. I remember talking with uh, our brother Jim Curtis, and I believe Jim struggled with depth perception. Uh, that problem is, a, is, a, is an interesting problem. Most people have what we call stereo vision. That is, most people, you've got two eyes, and the two eyes look at something, you've got two images that come to the brain, and what your brain does with the difference between those two images is it determines depth. That's the way you determine depth. And folks who don't have that due to a problem with one eye or the other, those who don't have that, basically they see the world in 2D. They see the world as flat panels, at least initially, but the brain is an amazing creation of God and you, the brain develops tricks that it uses to provide some sense of depth. But it's never the same sense of depth that people who have stereo vision have to begin with. And that problem of depth perception, uh, I was reading about this week. And I was reading about it in an article from the BBC, and this article was about particularly a few folks who have all of a sudden gained depth perception that they never had. And the one story that they led off with was a story of a 67-year-old neuroscientist from the University of California in Santa Cruz. And he and his wife one day decided that they're going to go to that 3D movie back several years ago by the name of Hugo. Uh, if you saw it, it's a beautiful movie, by the way. But they decide to go to it, and as they go to it, they've got to pay that surcharge for what? The 3D glasses. And he's thinking, what a waste. I don't have depth perception to begin with. Why am I going to need 3D glasses? But he, he buys them. He puts them on, and after the credits, when the movie starts, all of a sudden it's like, wow, for the first time, things just pop off the screen, and he sees all this depth, and it's, it's just amazing to him. But what was really amazing was it lasted, even after he took off the 3D glasses and entered back into the real world. Something about that triggered in his brain and with his eyes that which he had lacked before. And he exclaimed, before, everybody else would say, oh, see that bird in the tree? And, and I would look for it, but it just blend, everything blended in. There was no depth perception. And by the time they had seen it at the conference and he was trying to see it, their conversation would change and, and, and he would miss out. He said, but now, he says, riding his bike to work, 67-year-old, by the way, riding his bike to work, he would look into, that's something new, into the forest. And he would see trees. Trees, every tree standing out from other trees. And it was just glorious. Something had happened to him to where he gained depth perception. Now I've been thinking about that when I come to a text of scripture like the text that's before us today. When I came to the text before us today, earlier in the week, I looked at it, and I said, well, uh, and this is, this is telling on me, there's not much depth here. This initially just looks like, okay, you got two political parties forming here, and it's setting the stage for what? A civil war. Scratched my head, did a bit of praying, 
did a bit of thinking about my theology, did a bit of thinking about what Jesus teaches us in Luke chapter 24 and what he told to his disciples on the road to Emmaus that what? All the Old Testament scriptures do what? They point to him. They lead to him. I thought about that and then, then I cracked open a couple of commentators and the Lord gave me depth perception. And it's a glorious thing. And now I can't unsay what I see in this text. And hopefully it will be the same with you. What I want you to first think about is a refrain that is repeated three times in this text. Three times we, we hear something about the men of Judah doing what? Anointing David as their king. We see it at the first part of verse 4. We see it at the end of verse 7. And we see it at the end of verse 11. And as we do, what we're seeing is a section's end marker. So we've got three distinct sections. And each one of these sections has a focus. We have verses 1 through 4, first part of 4, second part of 4 through, through 7, and 8 through 11. What's the focus of each one of those sections? First section, the focus is this. The kingdom's arrival and initiation. The kingdom's arrival and initiation. What do we immediately see in this section? Immediately we see King David wiping the tears from his eyes. He's just been singing this amazing lament about his dear, loved brother, Jonathan and Saul. He wipes the tears from his eyes and where does he go? To whom does he go? He goes to the Lord. He goes to God. He seeks after God. He solicits divine assistance. And there's a wordplay going on here. It's very interesting. David inquired of the Lord. David asked of the Lord. Well, asking of the Lord, inquiring of the Lord in Hebrew was Sha'al. Sha'al. Sounds a lot like Saul. David is being the true Saul, the better Saul. Saul began to have problems when he did what? Didn't go to the Lord. Didn't wait upon the Lord. David, the better Saul, goes to the Lord and solicits divine assistance. He goes to the Lord and he asks, is it time? Is it time for me to be king? He's got the crown, right? He's got the, the king's armband, right? Is it time for him to be king? And if so, where should he go? Where should this happen? And the Lord answers him, does he not? The Lord says for David, yes, it's time to go. Yes, it's time for you to leave your exile. It's time for you to go to the promised land. It's time for you to go particularly to Hebron. Now, Hebron is interesting. First of all, it's a very significant city. It's a city of Judah. And it's significant for various reasons. One of the most significant reasons it's significant is that it was the place where the patriarchs were what? Buried. It was in the cave in Machpelah near Hebron that Abraham bought and buried Sarah. And it would be there where he would be buried. And so God directs David to start the kingdom in Hebron where Abraham had had that slither 
of the promised land that he had owned, but he didn't own the old promised land. It was still promised. And God directs David to go there. Hebron was also the city from which um, Caleb would live and be from after they took the promised land. And Caleb had been one of what? The spies. One of the two faithful spies. The other spy says, no, let's not go into the land. Why? Because there are what? Giants in the land. Caleb says, nah, we'll go into the land. <laughs> we'll take the giants. Caleb took the giants. Caleb was a giant slayer. Who else was a giant slayer? David. Hebron is the city of giant slayers. It's a significant city. It's also a high city. I mean, literally. It's at like 3,000 feet. We might, it's not Denver. We'll call it the half-mile-high city. But for David, it was high. And to go there, he had to literally go up. Well, that's what kings do, right? They ascend. This is David's ascension. He's being called to Hebron. That's where he goes. It seems significant. It is in many ways. But it's also something of a small beginning. Something of a very small beginning. Why? Who crowns him? Who makes him king? Who anoints him as king? All 12 tribes of Israel? One. One. One tribe. This is mustard seedish, if I might put it that way. Dale Ralph Davis tells the story of the Scottish pastor Alexander White. Alexander White had gone to Grenoble, France at the very end of the winter, and he was there vacationing in Grenoble, France at the very beginning of spring, and he, he writes a letter to his friend James Stewart back in Scotland. Something really struck him as he's looking at Grenoble. And he's looking, and what strikes him is all the grapevines. But what strikes him about those grapevines was how black, how gnarled, how dry, how twisted, how lifeless they looked. And he said he was particularly struck by how gnarly and dead looking they looked against the backdrop of the apple and the cherry and the pear trees and the plum trees that, as he put it to Stuart, were flaunting their lives and blossoms, were coming to life. But he wrote... Be sure that in spite of all appearances at present, this land will in a few months be covered with grapes. This land in a few months will be covered in grapes. This looks like it's dead. This looks small. This looks significant, insignificant. This looks like it's nothing. But what are we going to have? A land full of grapes. David's kingship wasn't so terribly impressive. His kingdom wasn't so terribly impressive when it was just over Judah and in Judah. The most significant thing of it was that this newly anointed chieftain, and that's in a sense what he is here, who had previously been anointed as king, he was there. God's king was there. God's king was in Judah. 
He was in Judah. And that's what was significant. The king was there. Small beginnings aren't the mark of failure. Small beginnings are not the mark of hopelessness when we're talking about God's king and God's kingdom. Small beginnings. Hebron or just a few miles up the road when God's king will be born in Bethlehem. And it's not insignificant for us when God's king, through his spirit, is here. For where God's king is, there the kingdom is breaking in. And you might not see a lot of grapes, but brothers and sisters, one day this land is going to be full of them. Grapes. Grapes. A great and glorious harvest of men and women who have been convicted of their sin, humbled by their sin, brought to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, profess that faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and by God's grace follow after Christ. And they go and become fishers of men, and they throw that net, and they bring others and others and others and others and others. One day, there are going to be a lot of grapes. A lot of grapes. Don't miss the first section. Second section. The second section we see the kingdom's grace and invitation. As soon as, as David is anointed king over the tribe of Judah, it turns out that he gets to work. Those who anoint him, no, no sooner do they anoint him, do they then tell him that it was the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead who had courageously and at great risk taken down the humiliated bodies of Saul and Jonathan and given them a proper burial. And David gets to work. And what sort of work? His first work, his first work in addition to telling all the uh, people of Judah to be, to be taught the lament, his, his, one of his first kingly works is a work of diplomacy. Not physical war. A work of diplomacy, not physical war. He's going to send word to the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead. And it's going to be a good and beautiful word. Jabesh Gilead, the inhabitants there, the, the, fittingly they are the ones who take Saul and Jonathan down off of their places of humiliation. Why? Because Saul, in his first act of being a king, did go to physical war, and he went to war against Nahash, Nahash, yes, I think, of the Ammonites and freed them. And they never forgot. And now they come to pay homage and honor to the one who had rescued them. And David is going to send a word to them. He launches into a heart felt and sincere campaign of diplomacy. He's truly grateful. Because he too, despite all that Saul had done, he had loved Jonathan and he had loved Saul. It's, it's a, a message of, of truth, but it's political too. He thanks them, he honors them, 
and he woos them. He asks for divine blessings to be upon them, and he makes a promise of favor to them. Don't quickly pass over that. He extends a grace-filled invitation for them to become what? Parts of citizens of his kingdom. The king, God's king, pronounces, calls, invites those who have been loyal to his adversary to come to him and be a part of his kingdom. And where does that take your mind, Christian? Post Luke 24. To the son of David, the king of kings, who extends an even greater grace-filled invitation to former enemies to come unto him. There's a passage that I read very frequently during communion. Here's Jesus' invitation. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Be sure it's an invitation but it's an invitation to do what? To bow. To bow. Jesus is inviting all in you to bow. To bear his yoke. To have his yoke placed upon you. He's king. It's a call. The gospel calls always a call to submission. Submit to the kingship of Jesus Christ, the rightful king. And yet, what sort of yoke is that? The yoke of Jesus is what? Yes, it's a a call to submit, but to submit to a king who does what? Lays his life down on a cross for sinners like us that he calls to himself. It's truth. But it's also an extension of mercy and grace and love. If we would be David-like, if we would be like a beautiful, glorious full moon, if we would be like fishermen by the Sea of Galilee, what kingdom work would be foremost for us? It's pretty simple, isn't it? Come Join with Christ. Come to Christ. Bend the knee to Christ. Renounce your desire to be your king. Bend the knee to Christ. For the one you bend the knee to is the one who loves you with an eternal love. Whose yoke is easy and his burden is light. 
His favor is extended to you. Brothers and sisters, if we would be faithful members of the kingdom, we would be about the, the work of kingdom diplomacy right off the bat. And always. Right off the bat. And always. You will be fishers of men. Lee would be a fisher of men. That's the message that's been extended to us. That's the invitation that was extended to us. That's the invitation that if you love Christ, by grace, you received that invitation and accepted it. Is that the message that you share? Do you ever offer it? Do I ever offer it? Do I genuinely offer it? Do I look around at all these people that the Lord has put around us and see that the harvest, is, is, the fields are white unto harvest? Do you ever fish? Do you ever extend such offers to folks like those of Jabesh Gilead? Sandwiched between David and his opponent, between Jesus and his kingdom and the kingdoms of men and those who shake their fist at God. Do you ever extend this invitation? Come to Jesus, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and he will give you rest. He's given me rest. I don't have to try to earn my salvation. I can rest from that because Jesus has done everything necessary for my salvation. Take his yoke upon you and learn from him, for he's gentle and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. I have that rest in him. I can rest in him. It's sweet. It's beautiful. I've been forgiven of my sins. You can know that forgiveness too. You can know that love too. Jesus has done all that for me. And I know him to be gentle. For his yoke is easy. And his burden is light. Turn to him. He's your rightful king. And you will find him to be gentle and easy and loving. The Lord is showing steadfast love and faithfulness to you, my friend. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Is that the message you tell? What a wonderful epiphany passage arranged by God himself. Let's hear it. Let's pray. Guide us, O great Jehovah. Guide us to follow King Jesus. Guide us to be heralds of the kingdom. Guide us to be those who mimic David of old when he extended such a gracious offer unto others. We've got an even greater offer to extend. 
Help us, O Lord, not to hoard it, not to be afraid, not to be selfish, not to be thoughtless. Fill us with love and compassion and a desire, holy burning desire that we cannot let go of to proclaim his greatness to others. We pray it in his name. Amen.